Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. So, I think that this article helps to show that the counter-revolutionary impulse that we often talk about and historians often tend to describe to tend to ascribe to the Federalists, right? If this is a primarily elite sentiment to retain their grip on power, that narrative isn't necessarily true. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Jonathan Curran talking about how public perception changed during the Whiskey Rebellion, before and after the violence. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by Discover Concord, the town where our American history began. Plan to visit and explore historic Concord, Massachusetts. For more information, visit discoverconcordma.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Jonathan Curran, and he'll be discussing the Whiskey Rebellion and how its perception changed in the public eye. The Whiskey Rebellion is hot stuff in my hometown of Pittsburgh. Western Pennsylvania was the center of it all, after all. But it's also kind of hot stuff in the popular imagination of the 18th century as well. Um, there's a certain uniquely American quality to rebelling against the government uh, when you are displeased with it. But a lot of it is just talk. In the Whiskey Rebellion, a lot of people supported the, uh, uh, the, the ill sentiments of a lot of the rebels early on. Um, they commiserated with them. They believed that the Federalist government was overreaching, was interfering too much in their lives. But as soon as things turned violent, they all fled. They ran. We don't support these people. We don't support this violent insurrection against the United States. And that has unfortunately become something we've experienced as well in the 21st century. Jonathan Curran gives us a really great insight into what newspapers were saying at the, at the time, and how we can track something like this. I think it's a wonderful article. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Jonathan Curran. Jonathan Curran, thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me on. Tell us about your background. So I graduated from the United States Military Academy with a degree in history and a concentration in military history. Took a bit of an eight-year sabbatical from academia, um, commissioned to the Army as an infantry officer, and then was selected to go back to West Point and teach military history. So I'm currently in my second year at George Washington University's history master's program. And interestingly enough, I actually have a general focus in the Cold War period. Um, but as we can talk about later, kind of got pulled back into something that's always been a bit of a fascinating topic for me. What first drew your interest into this topic? 
So the Whiskey Rebellion has always been something that's of interest to me uh, because it's, it's a potential powder keg that could have derailed the American experiment so early on but never really materialized, despite the threat of violence really on both sides with an armed and organized group of rebels taking up arms against an organized militia going to put down this rebellion. Um, but yet it's kind of been this interesting footnote to history that doesn't seem to be particularly well studied without all that many books published. You know, I, when I initially started looking at my research to just see what was, what had been published, you know, the books at most libraries on the Whiskey Rebellion are in the single digits and a lot of very good books on the revolutionary period just don't talk that much about it. Um, so I had a bit of an excuse to go look at this. As a grad student, I was taking Denver Brunson's class on Revolutionary America this spring and basically had an excuse to go looking into it, right? Um, and discovered just the incredible database of opinions in very well-preserved newspapers, which in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic was a wonderful boon. Um, and then as I started to read the historiography, I realized that no one was really writing about what people thought and how people reacted. Um, given this charged, the charged political environment at the time, all of the tensions, why didn't this flare up? You know, and as I started doing some research on it, I initially expected some, some sort of split, some sort of fault line, class, region, political bent, something like that, right? But I didn't. And disproving that initial hypothesis is what really excited me because I realized that the opinions became remarkably unified around a singular point. What made the frontier so primed for rebellion, in your opinion, in the 1790s? So the frontier area really char, really capitalized on that charged political climate. You know, with the polemics of the 1790s and the beginnings of essentially a two-party system as Washington's dream of government by consensus began to crater, all of the feelings of distrust in the federal government and distrust of elite rule that were bubbling up in the Democratic Republicans really found resonance on the frontier, especially as Democratic Republican papers grew in number and popularity to help spread those opinions. Um, the Federalist newspapers had by 1790 really lost their pseudo-monopolistic control on putting information out there to the public. And when you look at the frontiersmen, right, these are still the most independent-minded. These are the ones that are furthest from the seat of power that want to be the furthest away from the seat of power. But because of that, they're the most likely to feel marginalized by the elite rule policies which characterize the federalist government, as well as, honestly, the ones most likely to be marginalized by the elite rule policies. So these farmers who are doubling as distillers are operating on slim margins along the frontier. 
unlike the major planters and distillers that they know about and can compare themselves to in the East or the fairly wealthy merchant class. And then the frontier itself is that source of great danger, along with the increased threat as the Northwest Indian War meets with setback after setback. The frontier feels taken for granted, feels like they're absorbing all of those dangers, but are not really reaping any of the benefits of a federal government. And these are also, again, the most independently minded people in the country. John, could you talk about some of the major issues driving the Whiskey Rebellion? Yeah, so a lot of the, a lot of the themes in the Whiskey Rebellion are almost repetitions of grievances as you transition from the British rule to the, to the elite rule with these internal taxes levied against those who are not in internal taxes that are levied against those who seem the least empowered. So the tax on whiskey particularly affects those who aren't in the Federalist ruling class, the small farmers, the distillers who are nearer to those dangers of the frontier who have the least voice in the government. Additionally, the Whiskey Rebellion Army's kind of rocky relationship uh, with cavalry. So sit back, relax. Law, Because for these farmers, if they fell behind on their taxes or they refused to pay, they were forced to appear in the state capitals at federal courts. This is very expensive uh, beyond the means of these planters because to travel all the way there, not only do you have to pay for your supplies and go far away to the state capital, but no one's watching your farm. So you may meet with complete economic ruin over the course of the month, two months that you're away waiting for your case to be heard and traveling back. So whether intended or not, there is a dilemma that they're met with, which is pay up or be bankrupted. So to the, to the planters, right, this came across as a trampling on the minority to benefit the whole. And the, those who particularly benefited, of course, were the speculators who made profits off of the farmer's misfortune. When the farmers had found a way to maximize their profits and minimize losses, transporting whiskey as opposed to raw grain, the whiskey was easier to transport. It was worth more when it got to its destination and it didn't spoil. And now it seemed like the federal government was coming down and taxing their ingenuity. And then finally, there's the personal angle, because General John Neville, who's charged with enforcing the excise laws in Western Pennsylvania specifically, he's not only making money off of collecting those taxes, but he's also profiting from a competitive advantage because he was a large scale distiller who was closer to, Pen to Philadelphia. So, He's making money both ways, and that made him particularly a reviled figure in Western Pennsylvania. It's, it's really hard for us, John, as historians to quantify feelings. As historians, how do we measure something as fluid as public opinion? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's tricky, especially, obviously, there aren't uh, 
vast array of opinion polls like you like you implied, right? So it's almost something that you have to measure along regional class or other fault lines. Um, so there's, you know, there's often the truism in history that public opinion is really just elite opinion, which makes sense because oftentimes that's what survives, whether it be in journals, private letters, et cetera. It's the, the elite who have the time to be thinking, to be talking about and documenting these things whose opinion really survives, who are seen as important enough to preserve what they've written. Um, but particularly in the revolutionary era, you know, with this boom after the revolution in openly partisan newspapers and submissions, as well as records of speeches that are printed and distributed through those newspapers, you get a great window into what people are thinking, especially because such a large percentage of the population that is eligible to vote is also very politically active. So in the newspapers, you have the editors, you have the printers who are writing their own thing. You have regular contributors who are writing in who could be farmers, reverends, merchants, um, as well as you have your essentially letters to the editor, which again could come from any quarter and with people who are so act, politically active and interested in discourse, as well as openly partisan newspapers, you start to see both geographically through class, as well as through political organization, what people are trying to say in the public square. Um, in fact, one of the most interesting parts about the Whiskey Rebellion is that most of the little bit that actually comes out of the rebel-held areas is documentation of speeches that they gave or debates that they had. Um, so there's a surprising amount of information that's there, as well as anecdotal evidence that people on the ground write to a newspaper, like officers in the militia who write about the tensions in Lewistown with the Liberty Pole or the first signs of support seen by the militia in Carlisle, which really allows us to trace geographically where that line is between the areas that are staunchly for the federal government to the areas where opinion becomes a little more mixed, even outside of the directly rebel-held areas. So it's a bit of a puzzle that we have to put together, but, uh, in this particular case, fortunately, it's a little bit easier to not have to quantify percentages because of the way that opinion was shaped. What were newspapers saying about the Whiskey Rebels early on? So the beginning of the event, I, the event, I kind of split into two areas because it's a little bit of a slow burn, right? You have the increasing tensions prior to the attack on Neville in 1794. And then you have the initial reaction to that attack, which is really what kicks things off into high gear. So initially there's a bitter debate between the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans on the rightness of this law 
and of this increasingly vocal group of dissatisfied farmers, who, some of whom are outright rejecting uh, the tax collectors, turning them away with threats of violence. And the Philadelphia Gazette kind of fires the first proverbial shots on the 8th of May in 1794, when it calls for good citizens to resist by every peaceable and constitutional method, this excise tax, and later on doubles down with this by saying that we must do that, we must resist now while we still can. It is impossible to preserve liberty in a country where the public revenue is, is derived from this excise. So initially, there's actually support for the rebels' cause up until the attack on the 6th of August of General John Neville. So after the attack on Neville, there is a marked shift both in federal policy and in the discussions within the press. Um, that's kind of the trigger, the, this attack on a commissioned officer who is very high profile. They chase him down, they burn his house, you know, this, and then they form an organized group that is, these farmers are now organized, and this is, this is the point where it goes from being a bunch of rabble, essentially, to an organized insurrection. And that is also the big switch within the public opinion and the discourse within the press. So after the attack on Neville and Washington's condemnation, the press writ large, essentially cast the rebels out. You know, the general impression is even if you had reasonable grievances, this is too far. You are impeding the ongoing Indian wars by distracting resources and attention. And whatever Washington needs to do, to resolve this, we will stand behind him. And even the Democratic Republican newspapers begin to essentially disown them. And overnight, the phrases, the whiskey insurrection and the Pittsburgh insurrection become the standard way that newspapers begin referring to this conflict. You know, the whiskey rebellion is a term that was characterized, that was coined a little bit later on by the Federalists. But both Federalist and Democratic Republican newspapers immediately began to condemn this. Jonathan, in my hometown, the Whiskey Rebels uh, are viewed as something of a heroic bunch. Uh, never mind that their enemy, their target was the United States of America. They were traitors by any definition. Uh, how has our perception of this event changed since 1794? So, you know, I think that our perception has really changed because the significance of the event has largely been lost. And it's also remembered for something that it wasn't necessarily. 
right? So it's a minor footnote now. I recently read through Francis Coliano and Alan Taylor's books, and both of them devote a couple of pages to talking about it. And the discussion around the Whiskey Rebellion is largely that of the federal government proving that it could enforce its laws. But at the time, you know, and if we, we can, I can go back and lay this out, but it, at the time it was nothing short of preserving the fledgling republic. Like this, was a, this was a victory against possibly foreign-backed secessionist elements. And the narrative at some point shifted to being an exercise in federal control as opposed to being an exercise of maintaining the union at a time where there was every opportunity for the union to begin to break apart. Jonathan, we ask this of all of our guests. I think it gets to the essence of what we do as historians. How does this article help us understand the revolutionary era better? So I think that this article helps to show that the counter-revolutionary impulse that we often talk about and historians often tend to describe to tend to ascribe to the Federalists, right? If this is a primarily elite sentiment to retain their grip on power, that narrative isn't necessarily true. There is a very strong counter-revolutionary impulse across a vast majority of the United States that just has no desire to go through another war. You know, as, as soon as the rebels become viewed as a possible secessionist element, someone that wants to break away or start another revolutionary or civil war, possibly, again, inflamed by fears of Jacobin influence, especially as they've been hearing reports about the reign of terror in France, there is an immediate rallying around Washington's historical archetype of the great man and a desire to hold the union together at all costs. Um, and it also sets the precedent that violence is not an acceptable way to work out your differences with the federal government. Not just our modern historiographical focus on the federal government using the threat of force to quash opposition, but also that public opinion itself will turn immediately and irrevocably against you if you take up arms against the government. So in, in that way, you know, going back to my, my happy place as a historian, right? It's something like the, I think the civil war has overshadowed the whiskey rebellion in a way, much like Vietnam overshadowed the Korean war. But the, but the whiskey rebellion sets that precedent that holds the union together up until the civil war. Jonathan Curran, thanks again. Thank you again for having me. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. 
for everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.